0: Hi, I'm Jeffrey. Welcome back to Nightfalls. Come, settle in for tonight's calming meditation and soothing. Bedtime story. As always, don't worry if you fall asleep before the end. You can drift off whenever you're ready. I want to say a huge thank you to you all for listening in to Nightfalls. It really is a joy to share these stories with you. Not only do I get to relax and unwind as I read them, they also remind me of so many moments from my life. Tonight's tale is about Yosemite National Park in California, one of the most special places I've ever been. I think reading can sometimes be a bit like time travel. This tale certainly took me back twenty years. and. I'm excited to take you there with me now. I hope you enjoy it. Come. Join me by the fireside and allow yourself to be transported to one of the most startlingly beautiful landscape mankind has to be grateful for. Explore Yosemite National Park tonight as I read you one of my favourite extracts from naturalist John Muir's The Mountains of California. Muir's writing on the natural wonders of the world have inspired thousands to explore the farthest corners of our planet. Perhaps tonight, as you listen in, you'll feel just as transported as I did when I stumbled across this extract for the first time. Before we get started, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors who make this free content possible. in just two tabs on both Apple Podcasts or via the Supercast link found in the show notes for all other podcast players. Your sleep will thank you for it, and so will I. Before we begin our journey, let's take a moment to settle in for the night. Settle your attention on the sound of my voice as you begin to wind down and relax for the evening. Come to a comfortable position and allow your eyes to gently drift closed on the day. Draw a deep breath in and exhale, relishing perhaps the first moment of stillness you've experienced since you first got out of bed this morning. Inhale, drawing the calm and quiet of the night into your body, and exhale. Breathe in, and sigh out in relief. Release the muscles at the crown of your head, and ones that span your temples, too. Soften the muscles that knit your brow together. Let your jaw hang loose, and allow your tongue to fall away from the roof of your mouth. Let your shoulders sink into the soft cushions beneath you. and Let the muscles that support your back release, allowing your spine to fall back into perfect alignment. Release the tension bound up in your hips and allow your legs to hang easily from them. Feel your arms falling away from your shoulders. Feel your palms opening up as you experience full body relaxation. Feel the soles of your feet releasing and letting go of the tension that has helped to support your weight all day long. There's nothing to be awake for and no reason to remain alert. Tonight, there is only you drifting towards the deep relaxation you deserve. Now, if you're feeling ready, our journey can begin. The weather of spring and summer in the middle region of the Sierra is usually well-flecked with rains and light dustings of snow most of which are far too obviously joyful and life-giving to be regarded as storms. And, in the picturesque beauty and clearness of outlines of their clouds, they offer striking contrasts to those boundless, all-embracing cloud mantles of the storms of winter. The smallest and most perfectly individualized specimens present a richly modelled cumulus cloud rising above the dark woods about 11am swelling with a visible motion straight up into the calm sunny sky to a height of 12 to 14,000 feet above the sea It's white pearly bosses relieved by grey and pale purple shadows in the hollows, and showing outlines as keenly defined as those of the glacier-polished domes. In less than an hour, it attains full development and stands poised in the blazing sunshine like some colossal mountain, as beautiful in form and finish as if it were to become a permanent addition to the landscape. Presently, a thunderbolt crashes through the crisp air, ringing like steel on steel, sharp and clear, its startling detonation breaking into a spray of echoes against the cliffs and cannon walls. Then down comes a cataract of rain, the big drops sift through the pine needles, flash and patter on the granite pavement and pour down the sides of ridges and domes in a network of grey, bubbling rills. In a few minutes, the cloud withers to a mesh of dim filaments and disappears, leaving the sky perfectly clear and bright, every dust particle wiped and washed out of it. Everything is refreshed. And invigorated, a steam of fragrance rises, and the storm is finished one cloud, one lightning stroke, and one dash of rain. This is the Sierra Midsummer Thunderstorm, reduced to its lowest terms. But some of them attain much larger proportions, and assume a grandeur and energy of expression hardly surpassed by those bred in the depths of winter, producing those sudden floods called cloudbursts, which are local, and to a considerable extent periodical, for they appear nearly every day about the same time for weeks, usually about eleven o'clock, and lasting from five minutes to an hour or two one soon becomes so accustomed to see them that the noon sky seems empty and abandoned without them, as if nature were forgetting something. When the glorious pearl and alabaster clouds of these noonday storms are being built, I never give attention to anything else. No mountain or mountain range, however divinely closed with light, as a more enduring charm than those fleeting mountains of the sky-floating fountains bearing water for every well, the angels of the streams and lakes, brooding in the deep azure or sweeping softly along the ground over ridge and dome, over meadow, over forest, over garden and grove, lingering with cooling shadows, refreshing every flower, and soothing rugged rock brows with a gentleness of touch and gesture wholly divine. The most beautiful and imposing of the summer storms rise just above the upper edge of the silver far zone, and all are so beautiful but it's not easy to choose any one for a particular description. The one that I remember best fell on the mountains near Yosemite Valley, July 19th, 1869, while I was encamped in the silver firwoods. A range of bossy cumuli took possession of the sky, huge domes and peaks rising one beyond another with deep cannons between them, bending this way and that, in long curves and reaches, interrupted here and there with white, up-boiling masses that looked like the spray of waterfalls. Zigzag lances of lightning followed each other in quick succession, and the thunder was so gloriously loud and massive it seemed as if surely an entire mountain was being shattered at every stroke. Only the trees were touched, however, so far as I could see. A few firs, two hundred feet high, perhaps, and five to six feet in diameter, were split into long rails and slivers from top to bottom, and scattered to all points of the compass. Then came the rain, in a hearty flood, covering the ground and making it shine with the continuous sheet of water that, like a transparent film or skin, fitted closely down over all the rugged anatomy of the landscape. It's not long, geologically speaking, since the first raindrop fell on the present landscapes of the Sierra, and, in the few tens of thousands of years of stormy cultivation they have been blessed with, how beautiful they have become. The first rains fell on raw, crumbling moraines and rocks without a plant. Now scarcely a drop can fail to find a beautiful mark, on the tops of the peaks, on the smooth, glacier pavements, on the curves of the domes, on moraines full of crystals, on the thousand forms of Yosemite sculpture with their tender beauty of balmy, flowery vegetation, laughing, plashing, glinting, pattering some falling softly on meadows, creeping out of sight, seeking and finding every thirsty rootlet, some through the spires of the woods, sifting in dust through the needles and whispering good cheer to each of them, some falling with blunt tapping sounds, drumming on the broad leaves of veratrum, cypropedium saxifrage, Some falling straight into fragrant corollas, kissing the lips of lilies, glinting on the sides of crystals and shining grains of gold. Some falling into the fountains of snow to swirl their well-saved stores. Some into the lakes and rivers, patting the smooth, glassy levels, making dimples and bells and spray washing the mountain windows, washing the wandering winds, some plashing into the heart of snowy falls and cascades, as if eager to join in the dance and the song and beat the foam yet finer. Good work and happy work for the merry mountain raindrops, each one of them a brave fall in itself, rushing from the cliffs and hollows of the clouds, into the cliffs and hollows of the mountains, away from the thunder of the sky, into the thunder of the roaring rivers. And how far they have to go, and how many cups to fill Cassiope cups, holding half a drop, and lake basins between the hills, each replenished with equal care, every drop God's messenger sent on its way with glorious pomp and display of power, silvery newborn stars with lake and river, mountain and valley, all that the landscape holds reflected in their crystal depths. The waterfalls of the Sierra are frequented by only one bird, the ousel or water-thrush, Cinclus Mexicanus, SW. He's a singularly joyous and lovable little fellow, about the size of a robin, clad in a plain waterproof suit of bluish-gray, with a tinge of chocolate on the head and shoulders. In form, he's about as smoothly plump and compact as a pebble, that has been whirled in a pothole, the flowing contour of his body being interrupted only by his strong feet and bill, the crisp wingtips and the up-slanted wren-like tail. Among all the countless waterfalls I have met in the course of ten years' exploration in the Sierra, whether among the icy peaks or warm foothills, in the profound yosemitic canyons of the middle region, not one was found without its oozle. No cannon is too cold for this little bird, none too lonely, provided it be rich in falling water. Find a fall, or cascade, or rushing rapid, anywhere upon a clear stream, and there, you will surely find its complimentary oozle flitting about in the spray, diving in foam eddies, whirling like a leaf among beaten foam bells, ever vigorous and enthusiastic, yet self-contained and neither seeking nor shunning your company. If disturbed while dipping about in the margin shallows, he either sets off with a rapid whirr to some other feeding ground up or down the stream, or alights on some half submerged rock or snag out in the current, and immediately begins to nod and curtsy like a wren, turning his head from side to side with many other odd, dainty movements that never fail to fix the attention of the observer. He is the mountain stream's own darling, the hummingbird of blooming waters, loving rocky ripple slopes and sheets of foam as a bee loves flowers, as a lark loves sunshine and meadows. Among all the mountain birds, none has cheered me so much in my lonely wanderings, none so unfailingly. For both in winter and summer He sings sweetly, cheerily, independent alike of sunshine and of love, requiring no other inspiration than the stream on which he dwells. While water sings, so must he, in heat or cold, calm or storm, ever attuning his voice in sure accord low in the drought of summer and the drought of winter, but never silent. During the golden days of Indian summer, after most of the snow has been melted and the mountain streams have become feeble, a succession of silent pools, linked together by shallow, transparent currents, strips of silvery lacework, then the song of the oozle is at its lowest ebb. But as soon as the winter clouds have bloomed and the mountain treasuries are once more replenished with snow, the voices of the streams and oozles increase in strength and richness until the flood season of early summer. Then, The torrents chant their noblest anthems, and then is the flood-time of our songster's melody. As for weather, dark days and sun days are the same to him. The voices of most songbirds, however joyous, suffer a long winter eclipse, but the usual sings on through all the seasons. And every kind of storm. Indeed, no storm can be more violent than those of the waterfalls in the midst of which he delights to dwell. However dark and boisterous the weather, snowing, blowing, or cloudy, all the same he sings, and with never a note of sadness, No need of spring sunshine To thaw his song For it never freezes Never shall you hear anything wintry From his warm breast No pinched cheeping No wavering notes Between sorrow and joy His mellow Fluty voice Is ever tuned to downright gladness As free from dejection As cock crowing It is pitiful to see wee frost-pinched sparrows on cold mornings in the mountain groves, shaking the snow from their feathers and hopping about, as if anxious to be cheery, then hastening back to their hidings out of the wind, puffing out their breast feathers over their toes and subsiding among the leaves, cold and breakfastless, while the snow continues to fall there is no sign of clearing. But the usal never calls forth a single touch of pity, not because he is strong to endure, but rather because he seems to live a charmed life beyond the reach of every influence that makes endurance necessary. One wild winter morning, When Yosemite Valley was swept its length from west to east by a cordial snowstorm, I sallied forth to see what I might learn and enjoy. A sort of grey, gloaming-like darkness filled the valley. The huge walls were out of sight. All ordinary sounds were smothered and even the loudest booming of the falls was at times buried beneath the roar of the heavy-laden blast. The loose snow was already over five feet deep on the meadows, making extended walks impossible without the aid of snowshoes. I found no great difficulty, however, in making my way to a certain ripple on the river where one of my oozles lived. He was at home, busily cleaning his breakfast among the pebbles of a shallow portion of the margin, apparently unaware of anything extraordinary in the weather. Presently, he flew out to a stone against which the icy current was beating, and turning his head back to the wind, sang as delightfully as a lark in springtime. After spending an hour or two with my favorite, I made my way across the valley, boring and wallowing through the drifts, to learn as definitely as possible how the other birds were spending their time. The Yosemite birds are easily found during the winter, because all of them, excepting the usual, are restricted to the sunny north side of the valley the south side being constantly eclipsed by the great frosty shadow of the wall. And because the Indian cannon groves from their peculiar exposure are the warmest, the birds congregate there, more especially in severe weather. I found most of the robins cowering on the lee side of the larger branches, where the snow could not fall upon them, while two or three of the more enterprising were making desperate efforts to reach the mistletoe berries by clinging nervously to the underside of the snow-crowned masses, back downward, like woodpeckers. Every now and then they would dislodge some of the loose fringes of the snow-crown, which would come sifting down on them, and send them screaming back to camp, where they would subside among their companions with a shiver, muttering in low, querulous chatter, like hungry children. Some of the sparrows were busy at the feet of the larger trees, gleaning seeds and benumbed insects, joined now and then by a robin, weary of his unsuccessful attempts on the snow-covered berries. The brave woodpeckers were clinging to the snowless sides of the larger bowls and overarching branches of the camp trees, making short flights from side to side of the grove, pecking now and then at the acorns they had stored in the bark, and chattering aimlessly, as if unable to keep still, yet evidently putting in the time. In a very dull way, like storm-bound travelers at a country tavern. The hardy nuthatches were threading the open furrows of the trunks in their usual, industrious manner, and uttering their quaint notes, evidently less distressed than their neighbors. The stellar jays were, of course, making more noisy star than all the other birds combined, ever coming and going with loud bluster, screaming as if each had a lump of melting sludge in his throat, and taking good care to improve the favourable opportunity afforded by the storm to steal from the acorn stores of the woodpeckers. I also noticed one solitary grey eagle braving the storm on the top of a tall pine stump just outside the main grove. He was standing bolt upright with his back to the wind, a tuft of snow piled on his square shoulders, a monument of passive endurance. Thus, every snow bird seemed more or less uncomfortable, if not in positive distress. The storm was reflected in every gesture, and not one cheerful note, not to say song, came from a single bill. Their cowering, joyless endurance offering a striking contrast to the spontaneous, irrepressible gladness of the usual, who could no more help exhaling sweet song than a rose sweet fragrance. must sing, though the heavens fall. I remember noticing the distress of a pair of robins during the violent earthquake of the year 1872, and the pines of the valley, with strange movements, flapped and waved their branches, and beetling rock brows came thundering down to the meadows in tremendous avalanches did not occur to me in the midst of the excitement of other observations to look for the usals. But I doubt not they were singing straight on through it all, regarding the terrible rock thunder as fearlessly as they do the booming of the waterfalls. What may be regarded as the separate songs of the usul are exceedingly difficult of description because they are so variable and, at the same tune, so confluent. Though I've been acquainted with my favourite ten years, and during most of this time have heard him sing nearly every day, I still detect notes and strains that seem new to me. Nearly all of his music is sweet and tender, lapsing from his round breast like water, over the smooth lip of a pool, then breaking farther on into a sparkling foam of melodious notes which glow with subdued enthusiasm, yet without expressing much of the strong, gushing ecstasy of the Bobolink or Skylark. The more striking strains are perfect arabesques of melody, composed of a few full, round, mellow notes, embroidered with delicate trills which fade and melt in long, slender cadences. In a general way, his music is that of the stream, refined and spiritualized. The deep, booming notes of the falls are in it, the trills of rapids, the gurgling of margin eddies, the low whispering of level reaches and the sweet tinkle of separate drops oozing from the ends of mosses and falling into tranquil pools. The oozle never sings in chorus with other birds nor with his kind but only with the streams and like flowers that bloom beneath the surface of the ground Some of our favourite's best song blossoms never rise above the surface of the heavier music of the water. I have often observed him singing in the midst of beaten spray, his music completely buried beneath the water's roar. Yet I knew he was surely singing by his gestures and the movements of his bill. His food, as far as I have noticed, consists of all kinds of water insects, which in summer are chiefly procured along shallow margins. Here he wades about ducking his head under water and deftly turning over pebbles and fallen leaves with his bill, seldom choosing to go into deep water where he has to use his wings in diving. He seems to be especially fond of the larvae of mosquitoes, found in abundance attached to the bottom of smooth rock channels, where the current is shallow. When feeding in such places, he wades upstream, and often, while his head is under water, the swift current is deflected upward, along the glassy curves of his neck and shoulders, in the form of a clear, crystalline shell, which fairly encloses him like a bell glass, the shell being broken and reformed as he lifts and dips his head, while ever and anon he sidles out to where the too-powerful current carries him off his feet. Then he dexterously rises on the wing and goes gleaning again in shallower places, During the winter, when the stream-banks are embossed in snow and the streams themselves are chilled nearly to the freezing point, so that the falling snow into them in stormy weather is not wholly dissolved, but forms a thin, blue sludge, thus rendering the current opaque, then he seeks the deeper portions of the main rivers, where he may dive to clear water beneath the sludge or he repairs to some open lake or mill pond, at the bottom of which he feeds in safety. When thus compelled to betake himself to a lake, he does not plunge into it at once like a duck, but always alights in the first place upon some rock or fallen pine along the shore. Then flying out thirty or forty yards, more or less, According to the character of the bottom, he alights with a dainty glint on the surface, swims about, looks down, finally makes up his mind, and disappears with a sharp stroke of his wings. After feeding for two or three minutes, he suddenly reappears, showers the water from his wings with one vigorous shake, rises abruptly into the air, as if pushed up from beneath, comes back to his perch, sings a few minutes, and goes out to dive again, thus coming and going, singing and diving at the same place for hours. The usal is usually found singly, rarely in pairs, excepting during the breeding season, and very rarely in threes or fours. I once observed three thus spending a winter morning in company upon a small glacier lake on the upper Merced, about 7,500 feet above the level of the sea. A storm had occurred during the night, but the morning sun shone unclouded the shadowy lake, gleaming darkly in its setting of fresh snow, lay smooth and motionless as a mirror. My camp chanced to be within a few feet of the water's edge, opposite a fallen pine, some of the branches of which leaned out over the lake. Here, my three dearly welcome visitors took up their station and at once began to embroider the frosty air with their delicious melody, doubly delightful to me that particular morning as I'd been somewhat apprehensive of danger in breaking my way down through the snow-choked cannons to the lowlands. The portion of the lake bottom selected for a feeding ground lies at a depth of 15 or 20 feet below the surface, and is covered with a short growth of algae and other aquatic plants, facts I had previously determined while sailing over it on a raft. After alighting on the glassy surface, they occasionally indulged in a little play, chasing one another round in small circles then all three would suddenly dive together and then come ashore and sing. The oozle seldom swims more than a few yards on the surface, for, not being web-footed, he makes rather slow progress, but by means of his strong, crisp wings he swims, or rather flies, with celerity. Under the surface, often to considerable distances, but it is in withstanding the force of heavy rapids that his strength of wing in this respect is most strikingly manifested. The following may be regarded as a fair illustration of his power of subaquatic flight. One stormy morning in winter, the Merced River was blue and green with unmelted snow. I observed one of my Oozles perched on a snag out in the midst of a swift rushing rapid, singing cheerily, as if everything was just to his mind. And while I stood on the bank admiring him, he suddenly plunged into the sludgy current, leaving his song abruptly broken off, After feeding a minute or two at the bottom, and when one would suppose that he must inevitably be swept far downstream, he emerged just where he went down, alighted on the same snag, showered the water beads from his feathers, and continued his unfinished song, seemingly in tranquil ease, as if it had suffered. No interruption